All right. Thank you for giving me those few minutes. If you've got questions about any of that, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Open up your Bibles. Find Genesis chapter 40. That's our story for today. It's on page 30, uh, 33, if you're looking in a pew Bible. But first, a question for you. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that we name swords? All right, probably haven't spent much time thinking about that. I was thinking about that this week. I have a picture for you. There's a, this first one here is a sword stuck in a rock, stuck in a stone. Goes with a famous story. Does anybody know the name of this legendary sword? Excalibur. Yeah, Arthur pulls the sword from the stone, right? Okay, picture of another sword. Does anybody recognize this sword? No, not Robin Hood. That's a good guess, though. Yeah. Whose sword might that be? What? Gandalf sword. Way to go. Yeah, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Anybody know the name of the sword? Glamdring is the name, also known as Foehammer. That's a good name for a sword, right? Foehammer. Let's go to the next picture. Foehammer. Hammer in some foes. Well, as you guys know, because I've shared it before, Caleb's been learning how to make swords. And uh, I want to show you a couple of what he's made recently. This is one that he made uh, for one of Emily's friends up in Michigan. A genuine, real sword. It's even sharp. A lot of fun. He hasn't delivered it yet, so I was able to steal it this morning. He's not here to be embarrassed by this because he's in Kentucky with his college ministry group. I want to show you one more that he's made. This one he made for Carmen Snyder, who's in the back. And uh, it's a, a walking stick right, with a sword in it. <laughs> so uh, when you see Carmen walking around with this, don't mess with her. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think that's extra fun. So, uh, oh, I just broke it. <clears throat> Sorry, Carmen. Hey, you know maybe he'll give you a refund. Right? <laughs> Why do I bring up the swords? Some lives are like swords. They're cut. They're beaten, they're heat-treated, they're shaped, they're sharpened, and finally they're polished so that they can be used as a tool to cut, to divide, to help us discern the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There are a few lives that, that rise up in history as sharp swords dividing between the two great kingdoms of reality. Joseph, the guy we're looking at today, is one of those swords. And Joseph is formed into that sword through the process of heat treating, of pounding, of sharpening, of polishing. And today we get more of his story as he is shaped into that sword. You'll remember that Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt at the age of 17. He was sold by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit, taken to Egypt, He finds himself serving in the house of Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Joseph quickly rises to the top, and he becomes the second in command of the house, where Potiphar trusts him with his whole household. 
He sees that God is with Joseph in a special way, helping Joseph to succeed in everything that he does. The Bible actually uses those words for Joseph. And so Potiphar trusts Joseph. Potiphar's wife is untrustworthy. She is an immoral woman who is trying to seduce Joseph. And he continually stands upright, morally pure. He rebukes her. Eventually, she grabs a hold of him, pleads with him to come to bed with him. He wiggles out of his garment that she's got a hold of, and he runs for his spiritual life. She takes the garment, now filled with hatred and bitterness towards this man that she was inflamed with lust for, for how many years, we don't know. And she concocts a story where she accuses him to her husband of trying to violate her. In anger, Potiphar seizes Joseph and with no trial, no chance to defend himself, throws him in prison. That's what we saw last week. Joseph being hammered and sharpened and polished more. This roller coaster of his life, we looked at last week, the chapter ended this way, this way Genesis 39, 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So he starts his life as the beloved son in an up-and-coming prominent family, and he's sold by his brothers down into the pit. And he rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar, and he's cast into the pit again. And now he's rising still in the pit, now second in charge in the jail for the same reasons he was second in charge in Potiphar's house. We don't know how long he lived in Potiphar's house, fighting off the advances of Potiphar's wife. We don't know how long he has been in jail when we pick up the story here, but we do know that he has been in Egypt as a slave for 11 years, based on what happens in chapter 41, where it tells us his age. He's 28 at this point, as our story unfolds today. 11 years where he has been a slave, where he has had no freedom, where he has been in an entirely pagan culture, where there is nobody else who believes in the one true God and can encourage him or instruct him. He's got no written scriptures. He's only got memories of his childhood, of what his parents told him about God. And yet he continues to be faithful to God, and God is faithful to him. And so at 28 years old, we read this, Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. What do we have to understand about the cupbearer and the baker in order for this story to make sense? The cupbearer and the baker were extremely important in the kingdom, just like they are in any kingdom. The baker is responsible for not just you know, baking 
donuts and cakes and things, but he's in charge of the whole kitchen and the whole supply line for the kitchen. He decides who grows the food, what food they grow, how they grow it, how it's stored, how it's transported, how it's preserved, how it is prepared for the king because it is his responsibility to make sure that what is fed to the king is healthy, nutritious, and safe. Similarly, the cupbearer is in charge of that whole line of process of of making wine, all the way back to who's planting the grapes. And for him, he's got the added task of tasting every drink before it goes to the king, because if someone has poisoned it, he's going to take the fall instead of the king. These two guys are incredibly important, have high responsibility in the kingdom, and apparently Pharaoh caught word of some kind of conspiracy that they were plotting against him, and he threw them in prison. And now Joseph has been put in charge of caring for these guys who find themselves very unexpectedly, in their minds, in prison. Is it an accident that Joseph is assigned to them? Not at all. This is the providence of God at work. And so I want to pause for just a minute and define some things for you. Sovereignty and providence are words that we hear in church that we don't hear many other places. The sovereignty of God describes basically God as the king of the universe. He is sovereign. There is no authority higher than him. He not only creates, but sustains and rules over everything that there is. He is the sovereign. Providence is the way that his sovereignty works out in the world. It's his sovereignty in action. Now, this happens in a few different ways. God has made the world to function in certain ways. Things work in predictable manners. Otherwise, there'd be no hope of scientific discovery if everything was just random and crazy. But no, things work the way God has designed them to work. His providence is at work in those patterns. God works in cooperation with his creation and the way that that he has made them to work. He works with those patterns in cooperation in his sovereignty. And sometimes God works in special supernatural ways, sometimes even overruling those created orders, those rules of physics and nature, in order to bring about providentially his planned results. God has been at work providentially in Joseph's life for this very moment. He is in prison in order to meet these two guys. Now, he didn't know that, but looking back, we can see that. He's sold as a slave, purchased by Potiphar, thrown in prison, then waits an undetermined amount of time, maybe it was years in prison, we don't know, so that the providence of God can bring about this this particular meeting. That's what's happening here. Verse 5. One night, they both dreamed, that is, the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. 
Now, dreams have played a big role in this story of Joseph and his father, Jacob. You remember Jacob had that dream of the angels going up and down the ladder as he slept at Bethel. You remember that when Jacob was fleeing from his father-in-law, Laban, God intervened by giving a particular dream to Laban, warning him not to attack Jacob. Joseph himself had those two uh, nearly identical dreams when he was a young man, and it was the sharing, the, the foolish way that he shared those dreams, the insensitive way that he shared those, that caused his brothers to become murderous with jealousy. Dreams have been a big part of Joseph's family's story. If you're like me, you almost never remember a dream. Or if you do, it's only for a few minutes and then it's, it's gone. I don't know if any of you can remember like a dream that you had even years in the past. Maybe that's how your memory works. That is not how my memory works at all. But probably everybody in this room has awakened at some point and thought, was there something more going on there? Was God trying to communicate something to me in that dream? Maybe he was. Maybe you ate a bad burrito. I don't know. But in this case... These two guys, the cupbearer and the baker, fully believe that whatever they just dreamed has some kind of divine significance. Dreams were a big deal in Egyptian culture. They, in their previous lives, had access to a whole network of what the Bible refers to as magicians and wise men who could then interpret dreams. They'll play a key role in the next chapter. But these two guys, they don't have that network anymore. They don't have access to that. And so they're stuck in prison. They think that these dreams have great significance, and they have no way of knowing what that significance is. Joseph walks in, and in compassion, he sees that they're downcast. This shows maturing in Joseph. Because this is the same Joseph who walked up to his brothers and said, Hey, guys, I had a dream, and it basically means that you're all going to bow down to me. Isn't that cool? socially unaware, right? And yet, through the suffering in his life, he's been pounded and sharpened, and now his heart is soft and compassionate towards these guys who he's just met, who he should really have no investment in at all, and yet he's compassionate towards them. This clues us into one of the major reasons that we suffer at all. God allows suffering in our lives in order to Produce in us compassion for others and to prepare us for service and leadership. Joseph is ready for this moment of service and leadership because of the suffering that he's gone through. And so he says to these guys, what's the problem? They say, well, we had, we had some dreams and we don't know what to make of them. And his response is, is not God the interpreter of dreams? And then this audacious statement, please tell me your dreams. He's like, I know the one true God. I know the God of dreams. He's the one that reveals the secrets. And then he essentially invites them to tell him as though he might have an inside track with God. Now, we have nothing in his life to suggest that he has in the past been an interpreter of divinely inspired dreams. And yet, he's willing to take this risk. He's willing to say, let's, let's give it a shot, guys. Maybe God will reveal to you what these mean. Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. God, please tell them to me. 
Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth. The clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Okay, what that could mean. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. Notice, he doesn't say, I wonder if it means this, or have you thought about that? He confidently says, this is what it means. It's amazing to me. This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now remember that phrase for later. He'll lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So this is a favorable interpretation. If, if the cupbearer believed this, I'm sure that the next three days, he was waiting anxiously for his release. And that as the sun rose on that third day, he thought, this is the day of my freedom. I get to be restored. He's looking forward to it. Joseph adds this, only remember me. When it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. You see the poetic wording here, this idea that Joseph is now in a pit. That's how he refers to the prison. He was previously thrown into a pit by his brothers. In both cases, he was innocently condemned. Now, remember Christmas morning, for some of you, maybe this happened even this year, a sibling opens a great gift. Like maybe this year is a brother opened a PlayStation 5, right? And you start thinking, oh, I wonder what I'm getting next. Because if he got that, what's coming my way? And you open up the next press and it's like a pair of socks, right? That's exactly what happens now with the baker. He says, this is great. I really like what he said to the cupbearer. I wonder what he's going to say to me. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Sounds very similar. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, same wording, from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. It's a bummer for the baker, right? So as the cupbearer is eagerly waiting for that sunrise on third day, the baker is filled with fear, knowing that his last day is coming. Or maybe he just writes off Joseph as a crazy, imprisoned servant and hopes that he's wrong. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them, yet the chief cupbearer did not Remember Joseph, but forgot him. So it comes to pass exactly as Joseph would say, because God is working 
providentially in this, in this situation. So we have to ask, what's the point of this chapter? Why is this included in Genesis? Well, obviously, we're meant to understand that Joseph continues to be an example of what a young man should be. So young man in the room, be like Joseph. Be upright. Be faithful. Be full of good character. Stand courageously. Serve sacrificially even when you are unjustly condemned and wronged. But it goes a whole lot more than that. Because we see God continuing to work in and through Joseph through these crazy circumstances. Joseph doesn't think highly of himself, even in this situation. He says the interpretations belong to God, right? He's not, he's not saying, I can figure this out. He's saying, God can figure this out. Verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. He's going to give the credit to God. He's going to rely on God. Now, he could have just ignored them, right? They're just pagan servants of a pagan king. What does he care about them? But he has compassion on them. And God works through that compassion. And what we would hope to see come from it doesn't. He, he humbly says, please remember me. When you, when you get out and you're freed and you're with Pharaoh, please mention me to Pharaoh because I don't belong here and Pharaoh could get me out. And yet, we're told that he is forgotten. Joseph, at that point, like in all the other points in his life that we've looked at, could have just walked away from God. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in Joseph's situation where you were, you were maybe raised in a church, raised in a religious family. You knew about God. You knew the right answers and all that stuff. And at some point, you walked away. You, you forgot the Sunday school lessons, the VBS lessons, the things that your parents taught you. You walked away, and you did that because of suffering and hardship in your life. Joseph didn't walk away. Even after multiple sufferings, multiple hardships, He's still walking with God and being used by God, and God is still faithful to him, even as we read that the cupbearer forgot him. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Maybe you've been there. You felt like not only has not only have my best friends or my family members abandoned me or forgotten me, but maybe God has forgotten me. Joseph at this point could very well be thinking, as the days stretch on to weeks and the weeks to months and even out to two years, he could be thinking, Where is God? Does he not see me here? I have been faithful to him. He has worked through me to bless others, and yet I am still stuck in prison. Where is God? Has God forgotten me? We'll see very clearly next week that God has not forgotten him, but Joseph doesn't know that at this point. Or if he knows it, he only knows it by faith. God has not forgotten Joseph. And that's true of you too. If you are in Christ, 
God will never abandon you. He will never forget you. He will never leave you. If you belong to Jesus, you are held fast by him for all eternity. In order to drive this point home to you, I want to turn to the New Testament and look at an amazing act of remembrance. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate Good Friday, the day where Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago in order to pay the price for our sins. Hanging next to him were two criminals. They deserved to be there. They were guilty. They were getting their punishment. They knew it. They also knew, at least one, knew that Jesus did not deserve to be there. That he was innocent. That justice had broken down and that this man hanging between them did not belong on that cross. These guilty guys have very different responses to Jesus. One mocks Jesus. The other asks for mercy from Jesus. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, this little conversation links us back to the story of Joseph in that a man condemned is pleading with another to remember him. Except that this time, it's not Joseph pleading with the cupbearer to remember him, but it's a condemned criminal, rightly condemned criminal, pleading with Jesus hanging on the cross to remember him. What does this tell us about the criminal? It tells us that the criminal has faith in Christ and is turning from his sins. This is, this is the criminal entering into salvation right here. He's rebuked the other criminal, saying, we're getting what we deserve. That's an act of repentance and confession. And he's turning in faith to Jesus. Why faith? Because he's saying that, that this life of Jesus is not about to end, that it's going to continue on. He knows that Jesus is about to die. He sees the writing on the wall, and yet he knows in faith that the life of Jesus continues. All of those other disciples, the ones who abandoned him, they're not getting this, and yet somehow this criminal hanging on the cross is exercising this divine faith in Jesus at this moment. And he says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kind of faith does it take for a condemned man to look at another bloody, dying, condemned man and say, you are the coming king, you will reign over a kingdom, please remember me. That's a striking faith. And Jesus responds to that faith by saying, truly, you will be with me today in paradise. Jesus here is not only agreeing, yeah, I'm going to continue to live on beyond this. I am the king. I'm going to rule over paradise. But he's also saying, I get to decide who comes in to paradise. 
and I'm saying you get to come in. I'm forgiving your sins. He's actually doing the very thing that would allow for that forgiveness at that moment. Jesus is claiming great authority here. He's claiming to be the king of the universe, the ruler of heaven, the king of paradise. And he says to this man, who is more guilty than probably any of us in this room, you will be with me today in paradise. I will remember you. You will not be forgotten or abandoned. You are mine, and I will hold you fast. Now, it didn't look like that at the time. Anyone watching would have seen three common criminals breathing their last breaths in tortured agony. And yet reality is, a man just went from death to life, spiritually reborn and promised eternity with Jesus in heaven. Because our circumstances very rarely give us a real picture of what reality is. When you are at the bottom, when you are suffering, when you are feeling abandoned and forgotten, your reality is very different if you are in Christ. You are remembered. You are treasured. You are held fast by Jesus. So if today you're feeling abandoned, you're feeling alone, you're wondering if maybe you have been too bad and God couldn't continue to love you, or if things have been done to you in such a way that you feel completely rejected and abandoned by God, allow the story of Joseph and even more so the story of this criminal on the cross to be your encouragement today. And sing with all your heart, he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two striking stories. Thank you that you mercifully worked in and through Joseph, not only for his good, but for the good of millions, and to save your chosen family. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the mercy that you showed to that criminal on the cross next to you as he exercised this simple yet profound repentance and faith coming to salvation in those last few moments of his life. Thank you that you are faithful to Joseph, you are faithful to that criminal, and you are faithful to us. And so, Lord, those of us who know that we belong to you, we come to you now with a a song of thanksgiving as we remember and we remember forward the way that you are faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.